0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st Annual Conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference.
2: Welcome to a special crossover episode of Feast Your Ears and the Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Harry Rosenblum from Feast Your Ears, and I also host Time for Lunch here on HRN. Today we're asking, what is the future of labor in the fishing industry? I'm sitting down today with Fred Matera to talk about labor in the fishing industry. Thanks, Fred, for having me. Guys, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, working in the fishing industry. It's an industry that obviously has a very long history. We're sitting right now in Rhode Island uh, on the coast of New England, where fishing was and continues to be a fairly big economic driver.
3: Yeah, uh, this industry still is thriving. It's trying to coexist with the marine spatial planning that's going on with offshore wind and everything else. Um You know, my background is uh, I started here in Point Judith as a fisherman after going to the University of Rhode Island um, in 1972. So um, I'm retired now after 40 years of fishing. Uh, When I left, I sold an 85-foot freezer trawler, uh, the Travis and Natalie, and uh, moved on to training for fishermen for safety. You know, how can we teach them to use their equipment uh, to survive any of the uh, uh, incidences that could happen. You know, a man overboard, a fire, a flooding, an abandoned ship's procedure, uh, so that they everybody survives, and, uh, you know, that's the key. We can replace boats. You, you don't replace uh, men or women um, at sea. So, um, and then as it evolved over time, um, I sold those businesses, and, uh, you know, we've had this association here, Commercial Fisheries Center Rhode Island uh, for years, but we never really had leadership. We never had any big capacity. Uh, but uh, so they asked if I would come here and work with them and take on the executive director's position, uh, which I was fortunate to have that opportunity. And it's, uh, you know, bode well uh, for, for us and for myself.
2: You know, you you mentioned safety as being a a big uh, you know a a big thing. Obviously, there's been uh, you know I mean there are television shows like The Deadliest Catch that people are familiar with. Um, You know, fishing. I think people perceive it as a uh, it's physically laborious. uh, It's long hours and and there are dangers there. Um, You know, what does that look like when people compare it to other industries that they might be going into?
3: Fishing is and will continue to be the most dangerous occupation there is out there. I mean, exceeding coal mining and lumber and everything, you know, five to one, ten to one, et cetera. Uh, you know, we've lost a lot of fishermen this past year. And, you know, I think a lot of that's attributed to aging fleet. Mm. You know, the industry has gone through a uh, uh, a change here. Uh, COVID hasn't helped. So the revenue isn't being generated to be able to build new boats. So the fleet here now is in that 35 to 45 year old range. And those boats at that age should be replaced, but the revenue isn't there. So it will continue to be a very dangerous occupation. Uh, it, It takes money to maintain a vessel. And that's why it's always great when they're having good seasons.
2: Right, right, um, what is the day to day work of a fisherman? Uh, you know, obviously it's different depending what the fishery is, but you know, to use where you spent most of your time uh you know Point Judith, Rhode Island, what does is the day to day life of a fisherman look like?
3: Well, we have a lot of diversity here um in in Rhode Island, especially out of Point Judith, the major port on newport um and and what it is is you have two sizes of the fleets you have a small fleet inshore. And those boats are about 45 to 60-foot vessels. Uh, They go two-handed, generally, uh, a captain and a crew member. And, uh, you know, they're down at the port at uh, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. You know, a couple hours before sunrise, uh, they steam out to the grounds, which usually is an hour or two. um, Because every fisherman, when they start their trips or go fishing... They always want to be setting in at sunrise, Mm -hmm. just before sunrise. Mm -hmm. Your sunrise and your sunset toes are generally your best toes of the day if you're a mobile gear fisherman. So they're out there to set in and get an idea of what's there on the grounds and the depth of water and all. And they know from there, geez, this is good enough. I'll continue to replicate this or I'll move over to move other grounds. So that's the the day of a, a day fisherman. They'll fish until maybe three, four, five, six o'clock, and then they'll come in, unload, and then they'll do it again, and then they'll do it again. And they may do this eight, 10, 12 days in a row. Right. That's the laborious aspect of sure. it, and that's what's hard for new crew members to adapt. Yeah. They can't believe that, This captain is going to do this 10 or 12 days in a row. Right. Right.
2: Because you have to fish when there are fish and you have to fish when the weather is good. Right. And when the sea makes it possible. That's it.
3: You know, you only have so many days a year. Uh, The biggest deterrent uh, for a fisherman is weather. And it's not snow. It's not rain. It's not cold. It's not ice. It's wind. Mm. Wind. High winds, you can't fish. Heavy seas, it's dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to the vessel, the et etc. So um, now what I call a trip boat, which is anyone that goes, you know, three, four, five, eight days. So, you know, I used to fish seven to nine days out at sea. Um, They'll leave. They may go seven hours, 10 hours to the grounds. This time of year, you start to go offshore to the canyons. So that's a 10, 12 hour steam. Mm. So if I want to be there for six o'clock at sunrise, I leave at six o'clock tonight yeah. and I steam the 12 hours. I get there in the morning, I set in and I start fishing offshore and around the canyons around the shelf edge, anywhere from say 70 fathom to a hundred fathom. And I'm chasing squid or whiting or butterfish or monkfish, etc. You know, so those are the species. And then we just do this a lot of times this time of year, um, by eight o'clock at night, sundown, dark fishing drops right off. So they lay to, this is a, this is the gentleman fishery this time of year. <laughs> so they fish, you know, from six in the morning till eight at night or so nine at night, and then they'll turn in and they'll start again at six in the morning. Got it. So,
2: and then on those types of trips, I mean, you mentioned being out for seven, eight, nine days. the the length of time I assume is dictated to how much room you have on the boat and how many fish
3: you catch. Some of that, actually it's also dictated by the shelf life of the species. Uh When you catch squid, which is primary species being harvested here in Point judith in Rhode Island, um, you basically have about a four day shelf life. You need to be in on that fifth day. Um, You know, you want to be able to take out a good product that's iced down real well so that when they process it or pass it on, uh, to the next, uh, uh, um, uh, service, you know, um, that it's in good quality, you yeah. know? So sometimes that's a, a real kicker. Got it.
2: I, I was just down in, uh, over the weekend, I was at Mystic Seaport and I went on to the whaling ship they have there. And it got me thinking about, you know, the, the work of being on a boat or on a fishing boat, uh, you know, in that case, whaling, you know, 150, 170, 200 years ago, the work at sea sounds like it's not too different now as it was then except that you have things like you know motorized uh you exactly. know winches and things like that exactly
3: right? oh yes i mean i remember when i started in 72 you know all your winches were mechanical driven by sprockets and chains uh very dangerous you know no guards on them you know everything had to be engaged now you can have one person standing in like a little telephone booth or a console, and he's got valves and it's all hydraulics. Got
2: it. Has that made it easier to operate the boats from a labor perspective? Like, do you need boat. less crew?
3: Yeah, both. Yeah. It, it's made it a lot easier from a labor uh, perspective and much safer. Sure. Much, much safer. You know, um, you, you just, nobody has to be around that wench. Right. Years of guys, guys would get caught on the wire and get, I mean, pulled into the wench and you, there was never a good results if you got pulled into a wench. Yeah. You know, I know plenty of guys that have lost fingers and hands and, and things like that being sure. pulled into wenches. And there are some people that have lost their lives. So, um, yeah, this this is really simplified it. And the other aspect of it is all of these companies that install these uh, hydraulics, be it for net drums and wenches and anything else, um, they always have shut off valves all over the boat. So there's I had one in the wheelhouse, I had one back by the house, I had back by the council, I had it back by the, the stern. So God forbid anything started to happen, all you had to do was hit that valve and it automatically stopped everything. Got it.
2: We'll be right back to the big food question after a short break.
1: This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Peniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon-Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference. Comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at PASAFARMING.ORG slash CONFERENCE. That's P-A-S-A FARMING.ORG slash CONFERENCE.
2: So, is the industry growing? Like, how is the industry compared to how it was 15, 20, 30 years ago?
3: The industry has always gone up and down, up and down. It's mm-hmm. fluctuated. And a lot of that is based on the, the, the species that's readily available or prolific. Um, and Right now, uh, the, the species that has created a millionaires club is scalloping. You know, scalloping has been super lucrative, um, incredible. I mean, guys that were just average Joe's are now multimillionaires. And so, you know, a, a scalloper 15 to 20 years ago, you could buy a used scalloper with the permit for three, four, $500,000 you cannot touch a scalloper now with double um, dredges for less than five to $6 million. Wow. So you can see that the value has really increased uh, there. They just set records these last few months of vessels coming in with you know, 15, 20,000 pounds of scallops, getting 36 to $37 a pound. At the boat. To the boat, wow. To the boat wow
2: so i mean it sounds like that's both a factor of market forces because the scallops yeah. are more valuable but also it sounds like it's a fairly healthy fishery if they're able to bring in it's a, a very wow.
3: sustainable fisheries right now they've done a lot of uh the science work uh and and it's spread out that's the beauty of it uh, these scallops are from the canadian line all the way down to the carolinas So there's areas, you know, one all the way down by the Canadian line, Um, just uh, east of Cape Cod is area two, Um, south of Nantucket is the lightship area, Uh, there's an elephant trunk which is around Hudson Canyon off of Jersey, and then Delmarva Peninsula down uh, south off of Maryland, uh, Virginia. So those areas of the rotations, there's rotations. They go in, they do stock assessments, they do size, uh, aging and everything else. And as the small seed starts to grow and it gets to a size because scallops are sold on a count. So, you know, you cut the muscle out. That little round muscle is what you eat. So uh, it's sold on account. count. These 37, $36 are 12 and under count. So they're monster scallops. They're big, big scallops. And a lot of those trips is you might have 20,000 and maybe 8,000 of them it's under 12, and then the others are 1020s count. And that 1020 might be $20, you know, big difference disparity.
2: So then those, I assume, are getting sorted on the boats.
3: Yeah, you know yourself. You know what's big. So you, when you shuck, you put you know all the big ones in one bag, and then you put the average count uh, in the rest. So... You know, so that's made it a, a very lucrative fishery. The good side of that is trawling, which was the dependent fishery, say in New Bedford and here and everything else, and going to Georgia's banks to catch cod and haddock and flounders and everything, um, has been depressed. It's dropped off. The stocks are down low. The quotas are very, very low. So there's not an awful lot of incentive. Most of those trawlers have been either been sold or just don't fish. Or they just fish around the beach or they diversify to the squid or something else. Now, there are some bigger vessels that go to George's and they harvest haddock because haddock is the most prolific um, uh, species there now. So a lot of those vessels will go and catch 50 to 100,000 pounds of haddock in a week's time. And uh, you know, and land along with a few assorted flounders and some, and and all codfish is very very low quotas. Uh, same thing with yellowtail flounders. So that's changed. The small fleet they have been able to diversify, and summers have been and falls have been good here. Prices have increased now after COVID. COVID was devastating, uh, two thousand twenty, uh, but they've. They've rebounded somewhat. So, um, you know, that's what's happening with fishing. Uh, I would say that the average trawler down here now is making as much or more money than they did in the Past now that they're beyond COVID to its extent because prices have recovered. Yeah. Um,
2: as far as the the kind of labor force goes, um, you know, lots of industries talk right now, there's lots of stuff in the news about a labor shortage. And, you know, there's been, I think, you know, there, there's been a lot of, um, of, of evidence and a lot of studies about sort of an aging work population, right? If you look at the average age of land-based agriculture farmers in this country, it's getting older and older. Um, is that same thing happening in fishing?
3: Yeah, yeah, I have an expression like myself. Uh, we're graybeards, you know, it's, it's full of graybeards. And, and we need youth, you know, anything needs youth. You need that to sustain itself sure. into the future. Uh, one of the reasons uh, we've done five years of an apprenticeship program here at the center, and we'll continue to do another one in 22. Um, so, you know, it's just to try and infuse some youth into this industry you know, get some mentors, teach them. Our program takes a month. Uh, we do solid two weeks of safety training and then navigation seamanship, uh, mending, and, and then put them out to sea on a couple of trips to see what type of user group they'd like to be involved in. Sure. So yes, um, it's been very, very difficult. Um, years past, we've had, just for the apprenticeship program, 100, 110 applications. This past year was 40. Wow. We just couldn't get anybody. We can put 16 people through. We only put nine through because no one stepped up and wants to. So um, I probably get two or three phone calls a week. Do you have a crewman? Do you know of anybody? I need somebody. I can't go fishing. I, I can't leave the dock. I can't right. go two-handed. I can't go one-handed. Right. You know, I, I need that extra person. Can you find me a person? Can you find me? So that's constantly, it's it's the same same as all industries, you know, you go to restaurants, you anyway, anywhere you walk in, somebody's hiring, yep. there's a sign saying, or hiring. Yeah. So, um, that's relative to this industry. The one industry that is not dealing with that is scalloping and it's money. Mm-hmm. I mean, believe sure. me, standing in a box and shucking scallops for eight to 10 days, Will break any normal person. Sure. It really is brutal. It's it's the most brutal fishing there is. But you know, making one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, um, you can withstand a lot of pain and aggravation. Those ten days are over. You come in, and the captain hands you a ten, 000, twelve thousand dollar check. Um, you know, that sting goes away real quick right. and you're ready to do it again somehow. <laughs> you are. So, um, you know, so, and, and the other part of that is because it's, it's, there's such incentive there with the uh, dollar value because, I mean, making that kind of money is a life changer sure. to people. Yeah. Um, so they've taken all the good quality fishermen. They have all the best right. of fishermen now working on scallopers. Right. You know, so it's a depletion of real quality, you know, of, uh, of fishermen and uh, crew members. And, uh, you know, they're making the money. So that's where they all go.
2: Now, uh, you know, they're, they're making the money. Where are those scallops going in, in the marketplace? Are they staying local? Are they going to high-end restaurants? Are they going international?
3: Yeah, all of the above. Okay. Um, you know, we all love scallops. So, you know, you go into any restaurant, it doesn't matter if it's a and pop or a high-end five-star restaurant, they always have scallops on the menu yep. and multiple recipes and all. So there's a lot of scallops that stay here local, meaning um, in the Northeast region, mid-Atlantic. Uh, they're dispersed nationwide. These companies, they land over 40 million pounds. Mm. And then there's an excellent um, overseas global market there is a very good global market these scallops are very unique you know some of the best scallops in the world here harvested here so there's a tremendous demand by you know blue linen uh restaurants you know through europe and asia and everywhere so
2: yeah yeah absolutely um what do you think the the industry looks like moving into the future
3: (sighs) I, i i think that there's going to be a distinction here. I think there will be small boats because there's always those old timers that want to stay with it. They they just, they're a, once you're a fisherman, you're a fisherman. Sure. It's even hard for me. That's why the apprenticeship, I even still get out and get on a boat, <laughs> you know, and I see him go by and I start, you know. <laughs> sort of shaking. My wife is like, why are you whining? I said, it's a boat. I want to go to sea. You know? so, um, sure. But so there will always be that end of that fleet, that young people just starting because it's a huge investment to get into a boat these, years, these days. And, you know, the old timers that are just still continuing taking young people with them and fishing right here on the beach a mile, two, three, four, five miles off the beach, block Island and all um, so you'll have that diversity, but I think they will be more diversified. When I say that, I, I mean, there's trawlers and there's gill netters and there's lobster pot fishermen and pot fishermen. I think due to offshore wind and the ability to um, continue to harvest in and amongst turbines and fields of turbines, I don't know how much mobile gear, towing nets in between them will be capable of. Um, I don't know but you know, gillnating. I don't know. I, I, it's all new. It's something we're going to have to work through. But I think you will see that there will be more static or stationary or fixed type of fishing, gear fishing. Okay. So uh, squid jigging is something we're looking at through science and trying to find a way. How would that work uh, for uh, small boats where they would just put these automated uh, squid jigging machines on and they just they loop down into the water you know there's hooks ah, that go yeah. down and rotate and come back up and run them down and come back up and if you know squid hits it as they come back up and flip around it just flips the Gets squid tossed off. off yeah yeah sure and uh, you know so you harvest that and it's usually a nighttime fishing you know at night um squid aren't on the bottom which is how we catch them with nets uh, it's only daytime but at night if you put a lot of lights on Lights on the boat, under the boat, and all. It brings them right to the surface. So there they are, right to the surface. They're like you'll lots. See a, yeah. <laughs> you'll see a lot of people in Newport around the bridges, around the docks, jigging at night. Oh, because you know, the, squid the, lights, the, the, lights, the squid are coming over. Yeah. You'll see them all around the surface and they'll jig them. And it's the same thing that happens on a boat. So I think you'll see jigging for squid. They're jigging for mackerel down the east off Chatham, uh, species like that. I think you'll see more fish potting. Where guys will build pots that will harvest uh, black sea bass because there's been an explosion of that species, scup, to talk, things like that. Maybe even codfish, you know, out by Cox's Ledge because uh, that's a huge fishery in Alaska and yeah. the North Pacific. And then saning, you know, the small boats can do their own type of saning, you know, where they just circle the pot of fish or. They go out one side and down the other side and then tow it all together and it comes together and you harvest fish. So those are alternative uh, gear types. And I think there'll be more and more of that. And then there will be that big fleet. There will always be that big fleet. There is a tremendous demand for seafood globally. Tremendous. And everybody here, shoreside facilities, processors, they're all getting gobbled up by foreign companies. Mm. Overseas companies, and they're all coming in and buying up these plants and processors and uh, tremendous demand for squid globally because there's so little yeah. um, out there uh, in the oceans. And then, you know, there will always be fin fish demands and shellfish demands. Yeah. So, you know, and so there will be that big, you know, 85 to 110 foot vessel with five, six, seven crew on. You know that will go and just catch, you know, fifty to one hundred and twenty thousand pounds of fish at a time. Yeah, at for a, time, a trip. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's the disparity.
2: Right, right. It sounds like um, you know one thing that certainly could help, at least on like a on a on a smaller or maybe on a on a on a local industrial level, would be for people obviously to eat more fish, and if they were able to access more fish. I mean, you talk about scallops as being kind of an example of both a sustainable. Fish, sustainable fishery, um, one that commands a very high price, so you have good jobs yeah. in the industry. Um, do you see there as? Do you see potential in any other species for something similar to scallop, where the market price could develop and then kind of trickle down?
3: Yeah. Yes. You know, Harry, we're always um, seeking that underutilized, underdeveloped yeah. species uh, that. Is prolific but the market's not accepting it yeah. and we've always had this problem here uh, you know it's hard to believe that 95 percent of what we consume is imported right it's imported all the millions of pounds we land in rhode island in massachusetts and everything and it's still 95% is imported, 90 to 95. Okay. So, um, not a lot stays okay. here, you know, it's processed and shipped elsewhere. So, you know, you, you Rhode Island DEM just got some SK funding, uh, Salt Stall Kennedy funding, uh, which was very unique. And, uh, so we've had this seafood collaborative and ourselves here at the center and others throughout the state have are going to put a big uh, promote a big initiative of trying to get the the consumers' awareness of local caught species. You know, with billboards with advertising with anytime you go to a seafood display counter, we have a Rhode Island seafood logo. And in that display case, if it has that logo, in front of that species, that means it's caught locally. And we encourage people to please buy local. So yes, there's skate wings, and people you say, eat a skate wing? Oh my God, until you eat it. There's monkfish, you know, monkfish are prolific. It used to go to Europe, somehow that market is depressed. So they're just about giving monkfish away, a beautiful fish to consume. Uh, and not expensive. Both right. of those are not expensive right. fish, fish. Scup. We've been pushing scup for years. You know, we want to rebrand it to a uh, a, a golden bream. Sure. That's a lot more attractive <laughs> than just saying scup or a porgy. Yep. You know, it's similar to a Patagonian toothfish is actually a Chilean sea bass. Sure. But nobody no. wants to eat but something nobody called wants a to toothfish. Right. So... Um, I, I think we need, we, the industry and uh, the state and everything, uh, all through this region, we need to do a better job of making the consumer aware of what's available, what's local core, and, and create tools. Uh, one thing we've developed last year was a FishLine app. Nice. So it's on your phone. And if you put this app in your phone, you can go to that app and say, I'm looking for seafood, you know, that I want to buy from the boats or something nearby. You know, you like the app around me, something close by within say 20 miles. And this will tell you it's populated with fishermen that are coming in that said, I'm going fishing tonight. I'll be back in at two o'clock in the afternoon. You can come down to the, uh, the harbor. This is where I am. And you can buy fluke or scarp or squid or whatever you want. A lot of people come down and buy lobsters and crab. Yeah. You know, tons of people come down to the port. There's a line of trucks, I mean, vehicles for people wanting not lobsters and crabs. They sell them all for cash. So, you know, that's the thing that we need tools like that. We need seafood, um, RI, a website to go to. We need Facebook. We need all that type of uh, out, outreach. you know, to get it to the people. And I think once people start to consume and eat this and realize it's affordable, uh, there'll be a shift, but it takes an initiative.
2: Absolutely. I I wanted to touch briefly on a program. So, you know, as you know, I'm on the board of eating with the ecosystem, um, and I wanted to touch on a program that, uh, that you've been working on and, and eating with the ecosystem has been a part of to provide, It uh, started during COVID, but my understanding is that we've now secured some funding to keep it going, a program to supply whole fish to uh, communities that are in need of food um, and to buy those from the fishermen and then provide them to people uh, who are hungry.
3: You know, Harry, I've done a lot of different things um, in my 49 years down here now. Uh, seafood distribution program that we've started here, you know, emanated because of fishermen I talked to during COVID. You know, that were tied to the dock, so, uh, shoreside facilities that just stayed closed for two to three months. Yeah. No way to unload your fish, nothing. Uh, trying to sell it at the docks, very little demand. Um, so there had to be this pivot, and uh, you know, when fishermen start telling me that, geez. I'm I'm just throwing all this nice fish overboard. It's a discard, it's a bycatch. That's sad, that's ridiculous. That we're harvesting good, healthy, you know, nutritious seafood and we're throwing it back over. So I started talking to people about developing a program and be, so that it could be a two-prong. There are, you know, six communities partners we deal with throughout the state. Most of them up in the Providence area, um, in the metropolitan area. Um, And the Narragansett Indian tribe here that, you know, families struggled. People were out of work, you know, um, didn't have food and or little food. And there is nothing, you know, more nutritious than seafood. So I said, wow, let's tell the fishermen, don't throw that away. Don't discard it. Bring it in. I'll try to get you the most money I can that I can afford. I'll take that whole fish. And I'll disperse it and distribute it through these six different community partners. And, you know, it started off with a few hundred pounds here and there a week and, and evolved to a thousand. And I think we're nearly now in close to 16 months to 140,000 pounds that we've distributed. Uh, this past week, we, I think we gave out 2,400 pounds of fish, you know, to a couple of community partners and, there is nothing I've ever done more rewarding. When you see people... Uh, I've been hungry, but I've never, you know, not been without food sure. in my life. Um, I can't imagine what that feels like. Yeah. And when you see families, and and I think I told you the story, there was a woman that said to me, she came up and put her hands on my shoulder and just tears down her, down her cheeks and saying, you know, I, I just... I can't believe what you're doing for us. She said, I go, I have 11 people in my family. We still live like a tribe. They were from uh, Liberia. So I have brothers and sisters and kids and my husband and, and my mother and father and everybody living. In order to feed them, I have to go to the supermarket twice a week. And when I go in the supermarket, do you know what the most expensive thing is? It's seafood and you give it to me for free. And, you know, it's just like, oh, my God, you know, so the appreciation, the rewards of seeing that, knowing that people are getting good, healthy food and we can be a part of that and we can, you know, support the industry in the process. Sure. uh, Boy, it doesn't get any better and it works well and slow, but surely we're continuing to get some funding. You know, this is something that, uh, you know, everybody should be pitching in on.
2: Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Fred. is there any are there any other uh, initiatives or any other uh, details about
3: uh, the fishing industry that you wanted to share with listeners? I just I want people, the public to be aware that marine spatial planning is always going to happen, be it whatever it is if this aquaculture you know pens out in the ocean or trying to harvest the air and now we have to deal with offshore wind and look, I understand I have children and grandchildren. We need to reduce the carbon footprint. Uh, But we always seem to race towards something. We never really figure it all out. You know, we're notorious for building and deal with the consequences later. Uh, And that can be ugly. Um, The ecosystem, having fished out there for a long time, is a very fragile system. And uh, when you start applying electromagnetic fields into the water, electricity, you know, sensitive, fish are so sensitive to electricity. And then you're pounding, you know, 34, 35 uh, foot diameter pipes, 100, 120 feet into the seabed. That's a lot of acoustic noise that's damaging to, you know, all fish, marine mammals and all. Um, So I'm very concerned that This fast pace, everything has to be done yesterday uh, to get to that, you know, reducing the carbon footprint that we're not doing the right science. And and I'm okay with it as long as it's done with sound science, you know, and not this just here, here, here. And I don't believe it's going to be the overall, you know, panacea. I don't think this is going to be the answer. Um, I think there will, there's already problems with the ones at Block Island. So I'm, I'm a bit concerned and I just want the public to be aware that, you know, we seek other alternatives. What we've done is we've got funding where we go out, we meaning this fishing industry and look at other green alternatives you know, turbos and, and wind and and that's used on land around highways and in water lines and wave ocean wave motions and things like that, and not have to have these thousands of structures in the middle of the ocean that I have to try and navigate around. To me, yeah. it's going to be very destructive. Right. So that that's all. I, I just like the public to be aware of that and uh, be more vigilant in reading and listening you know, to those that are stakeholders and make a living out there. You can't see it and you don't see us, but we're out there. Right. Well,
2: I, I appreciate it as a fish lover. Uh, and, I, and I hope, you know, listeners also appreciate the hard work of the industry. Um, and we'll go out and, and share this information. And, you know, it is an industry that I think has a bright future. Um, and, you know, I would encourage people to, to look into it if they're looking for something to do.
3: Oh, uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, if I had to go back 49 years, I'd do it again. Uh, it was extremely rewarding. It was a great way of life for me. Um, I raised a family. I did miss a lot with my children, um, but I seem to be able to make up with it with my grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> so, Harry, thank you for this opportunity <laughs> you for and, and your, you know, uh, resolve to to make this whole community better.
2: Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to feast your ears and time for lunch. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, and Luke Griffin. This episode's producer was me, Harry Rosenblum, and our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.